0: Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. During the Cold War era, the Soviet and American nuclear arsenals served largely as a deterrent to an all-out military confrontation. Both countries possessed enough weapons to effectively destroy each other. This concept of mutually assured destruction made nuclear war unthinkable. But as more nations have acquired nuclear capability, the purposes these weapons serve in international politics has changed. Each country uses its nuclear arsenal in its own unique way to establish its place in the world order. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, we sat down with a University of Minnesota expert on nuclear weapons at his campus office to discuss his concept of nuclear opportunism. Mark Bell is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. He's written an essay titled Nuclear Opportunism A Theory of How States Use Nuclear Weapons in International Politics. Professor Bell, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. In your essay, you look at how nation states use nuclear weapons in international politics. Let's start with how nuclear weapons were first used. How did America's use of nuclear bombs at the end of World War II change international understanding of war and diplomacy? So I think in some ways,
1: the the way in which nuclear weapons were used at the end of World War II is actually very different to the way in which um, they've come to be used more recently in history. So at the end of World War II, the U.S. uses nuclear weapons in some ways in a very similar way to the way it had previously used conventional weapons as part of a strategic bombing campaign um, that had been you know, targeting Japanese cities uh, for a long period of time prior to the use of nuclear weapons. But once the nuclear age starts, what's interesting, and particularly once the Soviet Union acquires nuclear weapons, is that at this point, you start to see countries... That have symmetric nuclear capabilities, and that fundamentally changes the calculations of international politics. Suddenly, war between countries that both have nuclear capabilities, that both have the capacity to destroy each other, which obviously wasn't the case at the end of World War II, that is really the sort of condition that fundamentally changes the way that international politics occurs. And that's what we think about when we think about the nuclear era, the condition of mutual assured destruction between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, that really sort of changed the way that great power rivalry occurred in comparison to previous great power rivalries.
0: We do mainly think of nuclear weapons today as a deterrent against an attack, and as you suggest, that goes back to the Cold War era. Is this still the main purpose of nuclear weapons, or has the role changed or evolved over time?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it's very common for states to say that that's the only purpose of their nuclear weapons, Um, but I think that's just fundamentally not true in a lot of cases. Um, If you look, for example, at at the case of Pakistan today, uh, they very clearly see uh, their nuclear weapons as a shield behind which they can aggress against India. It's a tool that allows them to take more aggressive actions against India. To take another example, you know, the United States today... While it's true it uses its nuclear weapons to deter other states from attacking it or from using nuclear weapons against it, nuclear weapons have also facilitated for the United States a vastly more expansive and ambitious foreign policy than it had ever considered pursuing previously in its history, right? The United States had traditionally uh, sort of eschewed entangling alliances. It wanted to avoid being involved in the affairs of the world. With nuclear weapons, though, the United States began to and was able to take on, you know, alliances around the world, put in place a global system of bases, um, and generally have a much more expansive uh, foreign policy and grand strategic ambitions. Uh, and it's nuclear weapons are really what allow it to do that. So, so even for a country like the United States, nuclear weapons do a lot more than simply deter nuclear attack.
0: How many countries have nuclear weapons today? Nine. <laughs> so, uh,
1: so the United so States. So, still a
0: fairly exclusive club. Yes, at this absolutely.
1: Point. And, and part of the reason for that is that the countries that have nuclear weapons go to great lengths to stop other countries from acquiring them.
0: When did most of these countries gain nuclear weapons technology?
1: Uh, so, at the start of the nuclear era, the United States obviously acquired nuclear weapons first. Uh, the Soviet Union and, and Britain acquired fairly shortly after, in the sort of uh, four years after that, uh, for the Soviet Union about a decade after that for the United Kingdom, if you sort of consider its delivery capabilities. Uh, In the 1960s, you saw France, China, and Israel all acquiring nuclear weapons. And then in the late 1970s, you see South Africa acquiring nuclear weapons. South Africa ultimately gives up its nuclear weapons in in the early 1990s, Um, and India and Pakistan acquire in the 1980s, and and North Korea acquires uh, at some point in the 2000s.
0: You talked about how the US uses its nuclear weapons in international politics. How do the other countries you mentioned use their nuclear weapon capability in international politics? What are the main differences from country to country?
1: What I argued in that essay is that there are a range of behaviors that nuclear weapons facilitate. Nuclear weapons make a a range of foreign policy behaviors easier for states to engage in. Um, So one of these is is sort of aggression, right, that I mentioned with Pakistan, uh, sort of being able to push harder in, in pursuit of things you want. But there are a range of other behaviours as well. Nuclear weapons may make it easier to make compromises, for example. They may make it easier to stand more firmly in defence of what you have. And they also affect alliance politics. So they may make it easier... um, So they can affect alliance politics in, in sort of both directions. They can make it easier to strengthen allies to sort of provide additional resources to allies or to commit to defend allies. Uh, But they can also make it easier to act independently of allies. And so nuclear weapons can have a a wide range of effects, and you see all of these uh, different effects sort of in the historical record if you look at it.
0: We're talking to Mark Bell. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. He's written an essay titled Nuclear Opportunism, a theory of how states use nuclear weapons in international politics. How did the end of the Cold War fundamentally change the way nation states leverage their nuclear arsenals geopolitically?
1: So, in some sense, I don't think the Cold War changed the things that nuclear weapons are useful for, which is to say that nuclear weapons, much as they were in the Cold War, are still useful for the same sorts of things, right? They can still facilitate those same foreign policy behaviors that I mentioned before. What's changed, though, is the types of states who are able to acquire nuclear weapons, the types of states who are interested in nuclear weapons, and the geopolitical sort of environment within which nuclear weapons can be used. In the Cold War, for example, A lot of the United States' non-proliferation efforts, a lot of the U.S.'s efforts to stop countries acquiring nuclear weapons were actually directed against its own allies, right? It didn't want, for example, South Korea to acquire nuclear weapons. It didn't want Japan to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, It didn't want Taiwan to acquire nuclear weapons. All of these U.S. allies, and the reason was that the U.S. was concerned uh, that if those countries got nuclear weapons, they would, A, be more independent, able to do more things on their own that the United States might not want, um, and also that those countries might drag the United States into a nuclear war. Uh, the United States, if it fought a nuclear war, wanted to be the one to decide that. In the post-Cold War world, uh, the US has directed a lot more of its non-proliferation efforts against its adversaries. Right, so instead of worrying about allies proliferating, the US has now become much more concerned about adversaries proliferating. So in the post-Cold War era, you've seen a lot of US non-proliferation efforts against North Korea, against Iran, and so on. Um, And part of that's because those countries, had they tried to proliferate in the Cold War, would have had Soviet protection. And so it would have been much more dangerous for the United States to, for example, do what it did to Iraq in 2003. Right? If Iraq had had uh, the Soviet Union standing behind it, right, and, and invading Iraq would have risked a, an, an escalation with the Soviet Union, the United States probably would have been much more cautious about conducting that kind of operation. But in the post-Cold War era, uh, when the United States faces no serious peer competitor, the U.S. has much more freedom to engage in those kind of counter-proliferation efforts against adversaries.
0: I recall reading an essay, I believe in Atlantic Magazine around 1989 or 90 or so, talking about why we will soon miss the Cold War. And it was basically speculating that, as you mentioned before, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction really was a pretty big deterrent from engaging in the use of nuclear weapons. Once the Soviet Union and its bloc of countries fell apart, did the world destabilize to some degree with regard to nuclear proliferation and uh, the dangers of a nuclear war happening?
1: Yeah, I I think a straightforward way of characterizing the change that occurred, but that I think is, is broadly still correct, would be to say that at the end of the Cold War, we essentially swapped a small risk of a civilization ending nuclear war with a higher risk of more limited nuclear wars. And so, you know, I think, for example, you see more um, risk of of smaller-scale nuclear conflicts, for example, in the India-Pakistan context, in the US-North Korea context, in the US-Russia context, but the, the likelihood of the sort of US-Soviet Union all-out nuclear war, that threat has gone down. So that's sort of one way of, of thinking about it that we've sort of, changed the, the risks involved. The, um, the risk of nuclear war in some sense is higher, uh, but the type of nuclear war that would occur is, would be a much more limited one. It would still be, of course, you know, devastating to the regions involved, have huge environmental consequences, but not the sort of, you know, civilization ending type of, of war that, that might have been fought during the Cold War.
0: Is there international policy regarding the use of nuclear weapons? For example, does the United Nations have a role in authorizing the use of nuclear weapons?
1: Um, I, I think it might be nice if, if they did. Ultimately, you know, when it comes to, I mean, any decisions about the, the sort of national security of, of states, and particularly decisions as sort of fundamental to the survival of states as, as the use or non-use of nuclear weapons, uh, states guard those privileges very jealously. And so I think it would be very hard to get the states that possess nuclear weapons, all of which think that they have nuclear weapons for good reasons, all of which uh, believe themselves to be responsible nuclear powers, are unlikely to willingly hand over responsibility for those nuclear decisions to an international organization. And even if they were to do so sort of in word, I think most other countries would be somewhat sceptical of the truthfulness and legitimacy of those
0: commitments. Tell us about your theory of nuclear opportunism.
1: So my, my argument is essentially that, um, you know, although some... Some say, as you sort of referenced earlier, that nuclear weapons are essentially only only useful for deterrence, right? That they're only useful for deterring nuclear attack by other states. My argument, and the reason it's sort of called nuclear opportunism, is that nuclear weapons are much more broadly useful in international politics. And states recognize the broader utility of nuclear weapons, and that's why they acquire them. And it means that when they do acquire them, uh, they tend to use the sort of increased leverage in international politics that they have as a result of having nuclear weapons uh, to pursue things that they already cared about. Nuclear weapons don't change the fundamental goals that states have in international politics. And so Pakistan, for example, a state that has always wanted to uh, revise the territorial status quo with India, you know, acquires nuclear weapons and then uses nuclear weapons to its advantage in pursuing those goals. Uh, North Korea today, I think you can clearly see is sort of reaping the benefits of of having acquired a full nuclear capability, you know, and has secured a number of long-standing North Korean goals uh, in its foreign policy. You know, a, a meeting on equal terms with the president of the United States, the weakening of the US-South uh, Korean alliance. These are long-standing goals that North Korean foreign policy has had and, and acquiring, nuclear weapons and the capability to hit the United States has, has enabled them to achieve those goals.
0: In February of this year, President Trump suspended the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty, with Russia. How has this changed U.S. and Russia relations, and how has this move affected international politics?
1: I mean, I think we we have yet to see uh, exactly what the, um, the consequences of that decision um, will prove to be. As things stand, I don't think it's sort of significantly destabilized the sort of reality of the of the U.S.-Russian relations. It hasn't improved things. It's probably made it harder to pursue other arms control agreements, such as um, renewing the START treaty. Uh, but those efforts, the Trump administration has shown little interest in in any way. And so, you know, it's not clear that this particular decision has had significant consequences for that. Um, where it may be more consequential is in East Asia. Uh, Part of the reason the Trump administration wanted to abandon the INF is that China was not party to the INF and therefore China is sort of free to deploy a range of of weapon systems uh, in East Asia that the United States would like to be able to respond to. So it's possible that in East Asia it may actually be a sort of more consequential uh, factor, the fact that the US is no longer feeling bound by the terms of the INF.
0: Much international attention is focused on Iran and North Korea as these two countries move closer to acquiring nuclear weapons. You talked a little bit about the situation in North Korea. How about Iran? What does Iran want nuclear weapons for? And how has the international community responded to the potential threat of a nuclearized Iran?
1: I mean, I think what. US intelligence has sort of concluded was that Iran had an active nuclear weapons program up until 2003. And presumably the reason it wanted nuclear weapons uh, was much the same as the reason that North Korea wanted nuclear weapons, essentially to deter the United States from attacking it. Um, if you want to, you know, in the, in this post-cold War era in which the United States is by far the most powerful country on the planet, if you want to deter the United States from attacking you, if you want to make the United States think twice, uh, nuclear weapons are really the only thing that can allow you to do that, given the United States' massive conventional military superiority. But it seems that, that Iran ultimately decided that the costs of pursuing a nuclear weapons program were not worth the benefits they would get. So it seems as if they, in the aftermath of 2003, shelved the sort of active nuclear weapons portion of their program. Now, they maintained a nuclear research capability and a a uranium enrichment capability and a lot of expertise that would have allowed them down the road to produce nuclear weapons. And that was the source of uh, the negotiations in the Obama administration that ultimately led to the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, which put constraints on a range of aspects of Iran's nuclear program. Iran was in compliance with that until the Trump administration Uh, withdrew from the deal uh, last year. And I think, you know, unsurprisingly, since that decision, Iran has indicated a a willingness to move beyond um, some of those limits that were placed on it, right? Iran is no longer getting uh, nearly as many benefits from the deal as it was promised because the United States has withdrawn from it. And therefore, uh, Iran feels, well, why should we be bound by the constraints of the deal if we're no longer getting what we were promised? So I think that's why you're seeing Iran threatening to increase its levels of uranium enrichment um, and so on.
0: If Iran and North Korea gain nuclear weapons technology, how will this change power dynamics in the world? Uh,
1: Well, North Korea now, I I think, should be viewed as a a fully paid-up member of the nuclear club. They've exploded successfully a high-yield nuclear weapon. Uh, They've demonstrated the kind of long-range missiles that would be necessary to hit the United States. And so, uh, and I think that fundamentally changes the way that the United States has to deal with North Korea. Any war with North Korea will now involve the risk of US cities being hit by nuclear weapons in the same way that a war with China would involve that risk and the same way that a war with Russia would involve that risk. Uh, And so North Korea now is in a very different category of countries, right? The war with North Korea would really be devastating and potentially devastating for the United States in a way that war with very few other countries is. Uh, And I think that's why you've seen... You know, Donald Trump essentially, sort of, from the North Korean perspective, be forced into meetings with Kim Jong Un as equals. You know, in front of the world, and from the North Korean perspective, that is something that they have long aspired to, um, for the U.S. president to be forced to treat North Korea as an equal country in international politics. And similarly for Iran. I mean, Iran does not yet have nuclear weapons. It would take them some time to acquire the fissile materials necessary to produce nuclear weapons. But nonetheless, again, I think if they were to acquire that capability, uh, it would fundamentally change the options that the United States has in dealing with that country, and it would force the United States, um, in much the same way as the United States ultimately was forced to live with um, a nuclear-armed Soviet Union, was ultimately forced to live with a nuclear-armed China, was ultimately appears to be forced to live with a nuclear-armed North Korea, would also be forced to live with a nuclear-armed Iran, and that would impose certain... Uh, restrictions and certain constraints on what the United States is able to do in its dealings with that country.
0: We've obviously focused primarily on nation states. Let's talk about terrorist organizations. If a terrorist organization were to acquire nuclear capabilities somehow, whether it was through the theft of a weapon or materials given to them by a foreign adversary, How does that upset the apple cart, so to speak? Would Say, for example, a terrorist organization suddenly announces we have the capability of uh, utilizing a nuclear weapon. They may not have the missile capability to deliver it, but they say we can set this in a major city in the United States anytime we want to. How does that shake things up, and and do we spend enough time thinking about uh, the possibility of a terrorist organization acquiring a nuclear weapon?
1: Yeah, so it was a big focus of, I mean, since the end of the Cold War and and particularly with fears that a lot of Soviet nuclear materials um, were not sufficiently secure sort of across the Soviet Union, uh, but also elsewhere in the world, uh, it was a major focus of of a number of US administrations, but particularly the Clinton administration and the Obama administration to sort of secure nuclear materials worldwide. And and the reason for that is that actually once you've acquired weapons-grade weapons grade or or, or weapons-usable nuclear material, whether uranium or plutonium. Actually, building a nuclear weapon is not especially difficult. Um, You should expect that a reasonably sophisticated terrorist organisation, if it had um, a sufficient quantity of highly enriched uranium, and this is a small amount in terms of volume, about the size of a a sort of six-pack of beer should basically be able to produce a a crude nuclear weapon, right? I mean, a a nuclear weapon is simply two bits of, or or the simplest type of nuclear weapon, what's called a gun-type device, is simply two bits of highly enriched uranium fired at each other. And that's not a complicated thing to be able to produce. What that means is that stopping terrorists from getting that material in the first place is really the key choke point. Once a terrorist organisation has acquired it, it's going to be very hard to... A, stop them from building a nuclear weapon, but B, stopping them from smuggling it into a, you know, a port or a city. You know, these are not huge devices; could easily fit in the back of a, of a truck. And and so much, you know, in a, in a sort of globalized system, so much uh, traffic is going across borders, is going into ports each day reliably being able to stop that capability once a terrorist organization has acquired it uh, is, I think, going to be very hard. And so that's really the, the sort of key policy challenge that governments have sort of agreed is, is sort of the best way to prevent this from happening is to stop terrorist organizations from acquiring nuclear materials in the first place. And, the, and there have been a lot of efforts uh, to secure nuclear materials around the world, to, uh, to destroy nuclear materials and, and so on for precisely
0: that reason. We're talking to Mark Bell. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. He's written an essay titled Nuclear Opportunism, a theory of how states use nuclear weapons in international politics. Tell us about the doomsday clock. What time does the clock sit at today and are tensions with Russia and possible acquisitions of nuclear weapons by Iran and North Korea pushing us closer to midnight?
1: I think it's at two minutes to midnight at the moment or, or something like that. I mean, it, the Doomsday Clock has always been a sort of, you know, a somewhat attention grabbing thing. It's it's not clear exactly, you know, what it's it's based on, um, you know, whether it really makes a difference, you know, or whether the, the difference between three minutes to midnight and two minutes to midnight is that meaningful. But certainly it's a sort of, Eye-catching way of of alerting people to the dangers associated with uh, nuclear technologies and and a range of now you know the doomsday clock has been sort of expanded to include other sort of threats, civilizational threats, um, including climate change, I think, and, and maybe some other things. Um, so, you know, it's it's not something I pay a great deal of attention to in terms of assessing what what the dangers are, but but it's certainly a, a sort of a useful. A useful thing for keeping the public sort of engaged and aware of some of these issues.
0: When countries gain nuclear weapons capabilities, they gain international prominence. How can the U.S. and the international community better deter the spread or encourage de-escalation of nuclear weapons when there are benefits to having these weapons and the countries that have them obviously are reluctant to give them up?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's in some ways it's a very underappreciated success story of US foreign policy is the prevention of um, the spread of nuclear weapons. You know, the fact that, you know, when when John Kennedy was president, for example, he warned that, you know, within a decade, I think he said, you know, there could be 10, 15 new nuclear weapon states. And the fact of the matter is, we've seen a very slow increase in the number of countries that have acquired nuclear weapons. and, um, And that's really a remarkable achievement for US foreign policy and and other countries who've who've participated. And and that policy of of preventing uh, the spread of nuclear weapons has had a lot of components. It's had you know, U.S. alliances, part of the purpose of which is to prevent the countries the United States allies with from needing their own nuclear weapons. And that's part of the reason uh, today that Japan doesn't have nuclear weapons, part of the reason South Korea doesn't have nuclear weapons, part of the reason um, Australia doesn't have nuclear weapons, uh, Taiwan and, and so on. There's a lot of countries where that were interested in nuclear weapons at various points in the 1960s and 70s, uh, where the United States basically persuaded them not to. And part of what the United States did was to offer these countries U.S. protection. You don't need your own nuclear weapons because we'll protect you. And part of it was also simple coercion, right? The United States said, if you pursue this, we'll abandon you. Um, and so it had both these both these tracks. But the United States has also pursued a lot more sort of aggressive strategies uh, with its adversaries to try and prevent them from acquiring nuclear weapons. right? The fear of Iraq acquiring nuclear weapons was part of at least uh, the motivation for the 2003 invasion. You know, the US has sort of threatened war with Iran over the same for the same purpose. Um, and so the United States has has over time, you know employed a range of of uh, tactics in service of this this broader strategy of trying to prevent uh, the spread of nuclear weapons.
0: Mark Bell is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. He's written an essay titled Nuclear Opportunism, A Theory of How States Use Nuclear Weapons in International Politics. Professor Bell, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Next week, a look at how the legal ideologies of U.S. Supreme Court justices evolved during their terms on the high court and why the labels liberal and conservative may not always accurately reflect how a justice will ultimately rule on a particular case. In the meantime, be sure to visit us online at dialogminnesota.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time.